0: You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsey, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Hi, everyone. This is Robert Gowan, and you're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast, where we provide information that matters, including real talk from real veterans. Each week, you get an opportunity to hear awesome warriors who want to make a difference by sharing their inspiring or motivating experience. You can find us at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and at all of our social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram by searching MentorsTheNumber4MIL. We can't thank you all enough for tuning in and making this a great show. We also want to thank Skeleton Optics for sponsoring our podcast. If you haven't checked them out, head over to SkeletonOptics.com and be sure to use the code mentors, the Number 4 mil to receive your 10% discount just for following us. All right, grab a seat and tune in. This week, we're joined by an active duty Army officer, Maggie Smith. We recently came upon an article in the Army Times written by Tina Miles that summed up our next guest just this way. Who would have thought that running could not only change your life, but save it? Most of us would agree that we all face challenges at one time or another, and we may have to make tough, even life-changing decisions. Sometimes when faced with difficult choices, you may just have to run for your life. That's exactly what Maggie Smith did when faced with a life-threatening medical issue. She ran for her life, and it worked. Now she wants to inspire others. On this episode, I'm joined by my fellow host, Mike Pritz, as a recently retired Army Command Sergeant Major from the Tenth Special Forces Group, current Pat Tillman Scholar, and current high school teacher.
1: So it's a pleasure to meet you, by the way. Yes, you too. But I want okay. to start off because I think we met in Chicago at the Tillman Summit. I, I think so. Were you in Chicago this summer? Yes. I was this so, and I went back and looked through my pictures, and and I, I, I didn't see you on my work project, uh, but I, I know that I followed your Instagram shortly after in Chicago. I like I found all the other Tillman Scholars I could find on social media, and I, I was I was following them as much as I could. But it might have been right after that. But I've been following your exploits, uh, running all around the country ever since then. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, it's been fun. That was right before that was before Leadville.
1: So that's what I thought. I told Robin, I said, I think she's run Leadville because I saw the tattoo on your calf. And yeah. I, I saw a few, I've i got a few buddies of mine from 10th Group who have run Leadville over the last couple of years. And they all get that elevation tattoo on their, tat, on their oh, calf. Oh, they do?
2: I thought I was so original, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I <I'm laughs>
1: not anybody with it. I was no, so okay, excited Oh, no, 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 you're the only one to know it's
0: totally original. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So today, of course, is the Boston Marathon. And you ran this twice?
2: I did. I ran it in 2010 and in 2014.
0: Wow. How was that?
2: Boston's incredible. So I originally grew up in New England, and um, my life timeline put me at Boston College. um, Unlike a traditional timeline, I started there right after my senior year of high school. Um, I ended up leaving after three years, so I'm a college dropout. But, um, But at B.C., it would be like kegs and eggs, so you'd wake up on Marathon Monday, because there's no school, because Boston shuts down, and, um, and we'd go out, you know, right after people are coming down Heartbreak Hill on Com Ave, and we'd watch them, and back then, it was just, like, this amazing thing, like, oh, I would never do that, there's no way, because we were, like, not in any right shape of mind to even think about running a marathon at that point, um, so I grew up with it, and in that sense, and then, um, all you ever hear about as a runner is like running Boston. And that's kind of this big thing. And so when I got into running after I had my daughter, I went to a runner's group and there's this great running company in Washington, D.C. called Pacers Running Store. And they put on a series of races that that are fantastic throughout the city. But I went to one of their morning fun run groups and a woman that I met there had just run Boston and I like, reignited this kind of thought in my head of like, well, maybe I could do that. Um, And so that, that's how that started. And then it was incredible. And you go once and I had a pretty good race that time. Um, I got hurt right after that. I actually ran 2010 on a stress fracture in my left ankle.
0: Oh my God. Um,
2: But I didn't know it at the time. And so I wanted to go back and try and do better, and so it ended up that 2014 worked out for me. Um, and then it became necessity after the bombing in 2013 to kind of go back and own the streets again, and as a show of force with the running community. So
0: oh yeah, it most definitely. I got, but don't you know, you didn't think about running it this year then?
2: Well, so I'm in in the captain's career course. Okay. <laughs> So they wouldn't have let me have today off.
0: <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> totally understand. Yeah, makes yeah. sense.
1: So Uncle we're. Hey, so so well. I gotta ask real quick, Megan, Did you run with the uh, the pacer shop there, right outside of the Pentagon at Crystal City Crystal City shops?
2: So we did some of my runs with them, um, and know uh, Blair Riggs he used to run a lot of the the runs out of there. So I know Blair really well, and then but I did a lot of them out of their Arlington shop up in Clarendon. Uh,
1: yeah, I just I, I worked in the Pentagon from 2010-2011, and I used to run a little bit with the early morning group there at Pacers.
2: Yeah, they're they're great. I mean, it, they are exactly what you want from a running store because they're so invested in the community and everything yeah. that they do is kind of geared towards building that runners community in D.C., which is huge. And a lot of it's centered around Pacers. They kind of own the market. Yeah. Their race director, Kat Dalby, is amazing. So they have a great crew. So it's fun.
0: Let's take you back. Let's go way back, because you talked about, of course, that you're already a, a Army officer. But prior to that, back in 2004, you came into the Army as a 25 Papa then, a microwave systems operator maintainer? I
2: sure did. He- um, yes, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> they <laughs> um, offered me the biggest bonus, so no shame there. But, yes. um So I was was living out in Salt Lake City and doing nothing productive. Um, As I mentioned, I grew up in New England and um, left college after having completed three years. Sort of at that time, I think, with the intent of going back after one year off. So kind of trying to do a gap year that just ended up in, like, a gap, never return year. (laughs) Um, And so I was in Salt Lake City, and, you know, it became an idea not that got planned. And if anybody ever tries to tell you that the marketing for the Army doesn't work, well, they, they hooked me with the, like, earn money for college. And I saw it on an ad. I was watching a Red Sox game um, in, like, May, I think, or April, so spring season. And there was a Go Army ad, and I called the recruiter, and it was a Sunday. And then that Monday, I went in and, you know, did height and weight and all this type of stuff and ended up signing paperwork. And was enlisted from there. Wow. Um, And about a month later, I went to Fort Jackson, um, which is now just up the road from me, which is weird, and did my basic training there, and then came to Fort Gordon, where I'm at now for the um, cyber captain's career course to do AIT. But it was 25 Papa. I'd never done anything technical in my entire life, (laughs) and (laughs) I'd never intended to enlist in the Army ever, um, but it just kind of (laughs) happened.
0: Yeah, so you got hooked by a commercial, though. That's really... uh...
2: Literally. I know how pathetic that sounds. Yeah,
0: you're one of the few. I mean, they probably run millions of dollars worth of commercials, and they might get one. And it was Maggie Smith. So. And it was Maggie Smith. Yeah.
1: The
2: Marines tend to mon- monopolize like the billboards around town, but the army got me with an ad.
0: So at that point, you hadn't finished your bachelor's degree, or had you finished it? in that okay, so you had. I
2: had not. Yeah. Um, so like I said, the real intent was that I was sitting in Salt Lake City doing nothing productive with my life. And, um, and I had, I was 24, so I knew that I, was, I needed to grow up and do something. Um, and this presented a way for me to, in theory, earn money for college. Um, so I enlisted, and my first duty station was in Germany, and we deployed to Iraq from there. While I was in Iraq, I started doing some online program um, with Boston University. They have a kind of a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary undergrad degree completion program. But it ended up that when I got back from deployment, I was kind of unable to afford the online program that they had. They didn't have a military subsidy and it was much more expensive than TA. So I ended up stopping that. And then there was the PCS back to the States. Um, I came back in 07. I came to Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. Mm. And I was there for a year, it was a really weird year, Um, and then ended up re-enlisting and going down to Fort Meade. And it was at Fort Meade where I had incredible leadership from the platoon sergeant level all the way up to my battalion commander level. And amazingly, it was all female at that time. My platoon sergeant is now a warrant officer, um, Alyssa Guzman, who's a... Amazing person, and then um, my company commander is now Major Anderson, but she was amazing as well. And then my battalion commander was at that time Lieutenant Colonel Brandy Locker, and she's now Fulberg and he actually got to pin on lieutenant for, or second lieutenant uh, for me, which was awesome too. But so I had this like these women that were incredible athletes. All of them could run and were just amazing people and really pushed me to become better and this was also at the same time that I was going through a lot of personal stuff that I'm sure you want to talk about too um where it kind of clicked and finally you know my daughter was born and all this type of stuff and so school became a priority and finishing my degree became a priority because I've had second and third goals in mind that all hinged on getting my degree so
0: they, are they the ones that introduced you then to the green to gold master's degree program then
2: So they were, so this is the thing about Green to Gold program, Um, so anyone out there in the radio space who has questions about Green to Gold, please feel free to reach out to me because there's, it's kind of an elusive program, not many people know about it, oftentimes when soldiers go to talk to their um, retention NCOs about the Green to Gold program, as was my case as well they get told like commissioning is not my job i'm here to re enlist you not
0: <laughs> love right. that
2: right uh, which in i mean wait robert's a retention
0: too. yeah i was a retention <laughs> guy so this is not good yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah so and, but that's a, that's a lot of times the story that i've heard from soldiers that i've talked to and and to me that's that's a travesty so i try and you know share the wealth uh, but i found i had to like go on facebook to find a group where that's where I found the link to kind of the status of my application. And then on the Cadet Command's webpage, if you go to the GoArmy.com, you can find the different categories of green and gold that there are, which, you know, if you do the active duty option, you have two years to either do a degree completion or to do a two-year master's degree. And then if you don't opt for the active duty part, um, you can go, you know, two to four years on scholarship. But there's not really any touch point. There's no one that you can just call and get info about green and gold. So I brought it up as, as something that was potential. And it was funny because I was, in 2010, I was looking at kind of how my degree was going to play out. And I was stationed at Fort Meade. And there's a lot of great opportunities at Fort Meade on the civilian side because we have both the National Security Agency as well as, you know, a lot of government agencies in the area. So, um like, my husband got out in 2012 and now is a civilian at NASA. So, there's just great opportunities to merge, or to get out of the service and go into the civilian sector in um, government. So, I had all of these things going through my head. Um, and we were up, it was Fourth of July weekend, and I was up visiting my parents. And I concocted this plan because I was looking at timelines. And I realized that if I re-enlisted to get the school option, which some units do, and I think it's fabulous if you have the right soldiers to give it to, um, where you get to go to school full-time for a semester and your command lets you have that time to do schoolwork. Right,
0: that's really nice.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. And so if I did that, I would graduate right when the green to gold packet was due for the master's degree option. And so... I put that plan into action when I came back in 2010 um, and from my parents and when we were up there for the 4th of July, and then, and my command was incredibly supportive of that. So Colonel Lockard signed, is the one who reenlisted me to get this program and offered it to me and said, yes, you can do it, despite, I think there was one thing that I had that I, she gave me a waiver to be able to do it for some reason, I can't remember what. And then, you know, my platoon sergeant was pushing me at the same time to do this, Um and then my company commander at the same time was just, you know, was totally supportive. And that's, you know, a lot of times those three pieces don't fit together. And right. one might be supportive and the other might not. Or one might be unsupportive and recommend, like, let's not support this soldier. But I had the support of my entire chain of command, and it um, was awesome.
0: So, now, did Came the to... platoon sergeant go in OCS or something like that following you then? Or how did that she, work?
2: Um, so, she just completed... She went on, (laughs) Sergeant Guzman is an amazing person. She went on, she was a drill sergeant for about three years at Fort Jackson after leaving Fort Meade. And then she went to Warrant Officer Candidate School and um, commissioned as, I think it's a 235 November, so a single corps Warrant Officer. And she's now stationed um, with the 82nd Airborne.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
2: Yeah, she's a stud. She's amazing. (laughs) Um, and so we're still good friends, and it's fun. Um, she's going to get pick up her commission because you don't commission as a warrant officer until you pick up warrant officer two, or you become a chief at warrant officer two, and um, and so she'll pick that up. I think this November or December. So I hope to come back down here to to see her pin that up.
0: No, that'll be awesome. Right.
2: Yeah, it's good.
0: Backing up though, when you were mentioning earlier about some of that past history and such, back in two thousand nine, you you found out some information. There's a lot that you can share from that, that experience that others can probably take away from. And so you learned that you inherited the BRCA2 genetic mutation from your mother, but how how did you learn about that? How did that all come about in the first place?
2: So BRCA, um, it's BRCA or breast cancer genetic mutation. And that's kind of a misnomer because it also includes ovarian cancer too, which is often kind of the more silent killer of the two. Is it's really hard to detect in early stages. Um, but it's a really interesting gene or mutation because it's a foundry mutation, meaning that at some point in my, my history, my genetic history, um, the mutation happened in one single person. Um, it can be passed through men and women. It's literally a 50-50 chance. Wow. So I have a 9-year-old daughter, Emily, who is amazing, and so she has a 50-50 chance of having inherited this from me. And then being a genetic mutation, there's a lot of regulations that go around who and when you can get tested and, and who is the authority to say to get tested. So it's literally you and your own person are the only people <laughs> that can say, yes, I want to get tested because it's a, you know, it's, a, it's got a lot of implications. Um, and so, like, for instance, Emily has to be, I think, still, it's 21 till she can make that decision. So anyway. And I was 12 years old, and, um, you know, my parents sat us down. We were all watching Boston College. My dad went to Boston College, too, so it was, again, a little disappointing that I'm not an Eagle. Mm -hmm. But um, we were watching Boston College play football, and, like, we were all into the game, and our parents called us in. um, And I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And um, we all sat around the table, and my mom let us know that she had breast cancer. And this was back in 2012, and I was in sixth grade. So there was... Kind of a lot of um I mean, I was at that age where you know you started in puberty and all that fun stuff, and so it was a, but it was also like pre this kind of health awareness that the u s has gone through where like the word breast is not seen as something that's silly or or funny or weird to say in public and breast cancer is not like a, a something to shy away from or ovarian cancer or any cancer at this point is has a lot of recognition. Right. Um, and it was also at a time when um, insurance companies weren't paying to do You know, when a mastectomy happened, it was usually just for that where the cancer was located and not in a bilateral fashion, whereas today women generally have the option to have both breasts removed instead of doing it on one side and and not the other because the other is at that point cancer-free. So having, and we didn't know at the time that my mother had this mutation, but about a few years after my mother developed breast cancer, then my aunt, my mom's sister, developed breast cancer. Um, and it impacted Chris, my aunt, in a much different manner than it impacted my mother. It was a lot more um, detrimental to her health. My mother had a pretty, she just was extremely positive and had a very um, positive outlook always. And the chemo didn't impact her in a manner that was as debilitating as it can be for some people. Um, And then Chris had a really hard time with it, and Chris ended up passing away from it. I was really close to her, um, and she was just right outside of Boston. So that had a major impact on my life. And so then when I was 21, my mother developed breast cancer again in in the breast that had not been removed. And it was at this point around, like, the year 2005, which is a few years after mom had been diagnosed for the second time with cancer, that they actually tested her for the BRCA mutation because there was actually a test for it. And there's a company called Myriad and they had a patent on it. Um, I believe the patent still exists. So that means that they're the only company that can test for this genetic mutation. So being in the army and being over in Germany at this time, and um, I was getting ready to deploy to Iraq at the same time too, they didn't have the ability to get the testing, draw the blood, or do any of that stuff in a timely manner that would allow for results to come out that weren't, you know, old or tainted. And I didn't fully understand all of this. It was a pretty kind of a tumultuous time because it was just weird and awkward to know that mom had it, that I might have it, but not really see a way to get to get tested. And it took a long time. And it took from me going, coming back from Iraq, being in Germany, redeploying back to the U.S um in 07 and then eventually getting down to mead and having the support of kind of the command to help me you know give me a little bit of time to go figure out what i needed to do at walter reed and then a geneticist at walter reed taking my case and looking at my family history and saying yeah it's probably a good idea for you to get tested and and actually doing the test and then a month later finding out that that i did in fact inherit the test um and that was like the, you know, the monkey off my back. I was not a productive person by any means leading up to kind of February of 2009. I drank too much um, and was just not going anywhere. Uh, luckily, I mean, I never drank during my pregnancy with Emily. She was born in June of 2008, so she'll be nine in a few months. But right after that, I fell into a period of of really dramatic postpartum depression that included a lot of alcohol and a lot of unsafe behavior. And I was lucky. I mean, I had my husband stayed by me um, and kind of helped to get me out of that. And that's where running fits in, is running really kind of helped get me out of this depression unlike anything I had ever experienced before. And then um, also helped me heal uh, after I decided to take action against, um, against the BRCA mutation.
0: So getting back to the history of this genetic mutation, you said that this thing can skip many generations before it comes into play again. So how far back can it go where you had a relative, a distant relative that may have had it, either male or female?
2: Well, so it's always there. So somewhere way back in my lineage, somebody had this mutation, and it's traveled down since. And when you look at my history, so I, I got it from my mother. And my mom's sister, Chris, had it, the one we assume who passed away. And then she never got tested, though. But then my mom's older sister did not get it. And so Susan has never experienced cancer. Um, And then but my grandfather, it came down through my grandfather, my grandmother, who did get tested and it wasn't through her. Um, and then, but my grandfather's sister had ovarian cancer, so it showed there, but then beyond, you know, into my great grandparents, there's no way that we could tell like sure. where it from, right. but the one that we know it came from, down from was my grandfather. So it's, it has implications beyond just like, it's not like if I had a boy, everything would be okay because right. you know, men can get breast cancer and then it also has an impact on prostate cancer in men. So, so there's reasons, you know, for my brothers to eventually get tested, um, I mean, my little brother just had... A, I have a nephew, Wesley, who's a year old. He's hilarious and amazing. But, you know, there's a reason, despite the fact that Wesley is a boy and not a girl, there's still a reason for Bobby, my little brother, to get tested and for, you know, to Wesley know about this history that could be there. Right. Yeah, so it's a 50-50 shot for whoever. So, like I said, Emily has a 50-50 shot. I had a 50-50 shot. Um, Mom had a 50-50 shot getting it from Papa. So... But then, and then it just kind of, like, it's like the ripples in a pond, however horrible that cliche or analogy is, but it just spreads out from there. So, and you know, because you can think that anyone, you know, my great-aunt who had ovarian cancer, like her children, could be affected and all that big stuff.
0: So is it this time you said your husband really got you signed up and started doing a lot of the, the different marathon challenges and stuff? I mean, yeah. that in itself is not something... Most people would even jump to, by the way. I mean, they might get into running, might get into healthy living, yeah. but you took That's it to marathon. So,
1: Good and, and ultra marathon.
0: Yes.
2: And that, well, that came a lot later. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so Patrick, um, when I was looking at, so in June, June 2nd of 2009 is when I had my um, bilateral mastectomy. It was about a month after I learned that I was positive. And we had already talked about all of this. We had done our research. We had looked online and figured, you know, and and figured out what the, the courses of action were going to be. And so we scheduled the surgery right away. And so as I was getting in, or as I was approaching, Patrick was like, hey, look, you should, you know, I always got runner's world. And he was like, here, you should, you should do this. Um, this might be something like, do you want to try this? And I was like, eh. and he thought it would be a really good idea because it would, you know, it's. It forces you to get out of bed, obviously, if you have a marathon trained for. So it was um, yeah. scheduled to do the Richmond Marathon, which typically happens like the first week or two in November. And then, for whatever reason, I thought it was great that I had signed up for this marathon, so I decided to put the Marine Corps on the books too, which was about a month beforehand. So I guess it was like the third weekend. And we were living, you know, we were living down in Alexandria, so I had the Mount Vernon Trail to run on, and I, you know, was getting up early, but it really. It was amazing to watch how running helped me heal from these, like, massive, you know, eight-inch scars that I had, or about six-inch scars, two massive ones on my chest. Um, and I did opt for not or opt not to have reconstruction surgery, which means that I'm, like, completely flat, and the reasons for that were varied. Um, you know, that's, I watched my mother not opt for reconstruction, I watched my aunt opt for reconstruction and have multiple complications with it. Um, Patrick and I did our research, and, you know, they really the only reason we could think of was that cosmetically, you know, I might be able to wear a dress a little bit better than right. <laughs> without. Um, and as a runner, it ended up being great. Uh, we bought less <laughs> to do that. Um, And then ultimately it came down to when you get, when you have a mastectomy, they tell you, make it very vivid for you that, like, you can't carry anything heavier than a jug of milk for a long time. And I had, you know, Emily was nine months when I went into surgery. So like, that's, you know, that's a pretty, or sorry, 11 months. Well, whatever. She turned a year right at the end of the month when I had my surgery. So basically I wouldn't have been able to like pick up Emily. And so that in, you know, and then it's like, you set yourself up for another year of like saline injections and then another surgery. So it's very, it's a dramatic thing, and so I, I opted out. I'm not a cocktail-wearing um, kind of party or anything like that, So, uh, and I wear a uniform, so it's fine. I look pretty normal. So after making that decision, I didn't have to worry about any follow-on stuff, so I was able to get active a lot quicker. So about two weeks after, you know, every day I made myself get up and walk, and then about two weeks after, I started trying to learn how to run again because my whole, like, center of gravity was off after the surgery. Um, and then just... You know, getting in shape and running and kind of watching my body kind of respond to the motion that I put it in and like being able to move because my mom had had a lot of mobility issues, I think, with some of the nerves after surgery in her arms because she used to swim and, you know, and I got after it quick and my mobility came back and it just like, you know, I healed so quickly and I attribute a lot of that to just getting out there and and one being outside because that's where to be. And then to to just putting my body through kind of different stresses that didn't solely focus on where I was, you know, bandaged and allowed kind of sensations to get, or, you know, some pain to occur elsewhere in my body (laughs) was really good. And so I healed really quickly from my um, mastectomy and I hit Marine Corps and I ran a 324 and qualified for Boston. Um,
0: That's amazing. And It was
2: amazing. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, so did you have any type of trainer or anybody working with you at this point? I mean, did you go out and seek somebody or was it you just got out there and started hustling yourself and doing some Googling or what? What? How did you get involved in this whole thing outside of your uh, your husband signing well, they, up for it?
2: This is what, like, that's what Runner's World offered. This, for, this was the first time they had done it, and they offered this marathon challenge. And you sign up and you kind of get looped into a community of runners that are all going for the same goal. And you get given they give you a training plan. And so it's the standard kind of runners world training peaks is the the platform that they use. And so it delivers kind of what your your guidelines should be for that week, what exercises you should do, what um, runs you need to get in, and the distances that you should go. So I use that um, for for that. Um, and that's got that got me to you know, got that got me through several marathons going with the training program. Until I kind of figured out how I needed to to operate to stay like healthy and, and avoid injury and and have it work with everything that was going on in life.
0: Are you now training other people for these types of events? I mean I would assume that people are starting to follow you on Instagram, starting to see some of the stuff that you've done in the past and going, Hey Maggie, I need some help here. What would you say is the best guidance? Do you find yourself doing that a lot or
2: I definitely receive questions, and I definitely try and offer sound advice. I think the most that um, I, so just, I've just pcs down here to Fort Gordon, uh, so a big load has kind of been taken off, load, a lot of responsibility. Something that I'm interested in, I guess, is as a runner, and as somebody who re- does receive a lot of questions about, you know, sustainable running, and how did you get into it, and X, Y, and Z, and what should I do, is Talking with soldiers uh, about their relationship with running because a lot of people graduate from high school and enter the military and the only relationship that they have with running is their two mile APFT if you're in the army or you know three miles for the Marines and then like five or something for the Navy and Air Force. I have no idea. What they do. But you get what I'm saying. It's a forced relationship. It's not something that's like cultivated.
0: Right, right.
2: <laughs> um. And so my, the team that I worked with back at Fort Meade, I had an amazing group of soldiers that I worked with. And um, we were able to kind of, I think that, you know, we had a pretty good relationship with running and we made it fun. I took them out and we did some trail running um, in Tapsco State Park, which is beautiful, right outside of Fort Meade. And uh, I kind of tried to show them that it was something that was fun, didn't have to be focused solely on kind of this APFT model. And then additionally, I also work with people to talk to them about how they train for that two-mile run because if you just, you know, I don't care if you went out and ran four miles because if you're running at a 10-minute pace, then you're still not going to run a two-mile at, you know, your your seven-minute pace if you need to get it in. So actually doing speed work and getting on a track or doing tempo runs and those types of things will actually help you because you're never going to run fast if you don't force yourself to run faster in training. Endurance is only one piece of the getting your body to realize that it can turn over your legs faster is another piece. So that's kind of been where my focus is. I would love, I did, um, I had the opportunity to take the USATF or uh, US track and field, their level one coaching certification. Uh-huh. So I learned a lot from that. I have yet to really be able to have the time to apply that to, to people and all that stuff. Part of the interest in that was because my daughter Kind of a natural runner. And I didn't know as a parent kind of how to foster that without pushing it, Um, just kind of letting her figure out what she wanted to do. So we've worked through that. And she, um, being away from her is awful right now. But um, one of the things, like her and my husband, um, who's trying to get back into running a little bit, he's a biker at this point. But um, they've been doing going out to a park close to our home and they've been doing, you know, about two miles of quote unquote training runs. Um say I think his intent is to run a 5k with her, which is great. But then another thing she likes to do is we'll pick we live in the city, so we'll pick, you know, uh we're gonna go to that lamppost and we'll run to it as fast as we can and then we'll be like she'll be like, "Oh, uh, let's do ten jumpy jacks and we'll do ten jumpy <laughs> jacks and then I step we run to and I'll be like running to the other edge of this field and then so we go to the other uh, edge of the park and then I pick an exercise. And then we, we alternate like that, and we end up getting in, you know, some significant mileage oh, where she's just definitely. laughing and having a great time. And it's her thing, but she still, like, just gets the love. So um, so that's been a benefit of receiving some formal training and in, um, in coaching. But it's definitely something that I want to do in the future. I'm
1: going to circle back a few minutes to uh, what you said about active duty service members and soldiers' relationship with the product running. Because when I came in, I mean, my first assignment in the Army was in the 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, I'll tell you, I hated running for years because I had to do it every morning. And, um, you know, the only difference when I got into Special Forces was there was only two days of running. There was long, fast distance. And the next day was long, fast distance. Uh, So, and I I mean, nobody taught me how to run. It was just I had a team sergeant who ran really well. He was an all-Army 10-miler from here at Fort Carson. He was on the Fort Carson team. He ran it every year. And he was genetically predispositioned as a runner and I am genetically predispositioned as more of a weightlifter. Uh, But it it took me years. And and when I, when I got much older, I think, and more senior in the military, I really, I started to enjoy running uh, more. And I, I, to kind of go back, I I started running a lot slower, you know, and so running, running fast and fast and fast has has damaged my body. Um, and, And again, What was the idea of running fast? Well, you gotta you gotta max your PT test. You gotta outrun everybody else in SF. You can't you can't let anybody beat you. We're very competitive. When I started running slower and not caring about people passing me, I really started to enjoy running. And then I got faster. I got faster than I had ever been. And then I started looking, kind of like what you said, I started looking at, hey, how do I do this right? How do I get the mechanics down? And like anything else you know, there's technique. We teach guys to do technique in room clearing. Uh, we're teaching, I teach guys to do technique now with offensive line stuff. Uh, but I, 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 nobody ever taught me the technique of running. They never taught me to love running and to enjoy it. So I think that's great. What you said about teaching people to have a relationship with running. We don't do that very well in the military. We just expect you, Hey, you sign a contract It's a standard. We expect you to run it this fast.
2: Yeah. It's a job expectation rather than, and I think, um, a lot of the focus is on just, I mean, you train to the test, I guess. But it's it's hard because I don't think we give them the tools to really, I mean, it's not like you ask soldiers to maintain a certain body weight and um, do X, Y, and Z, but it's never really taught kind of how to adopt a healthy lifestyle. And, and so without, I think that's one of the missing pieces. And, you know, one hour in the morning doesn't necessarily cut it because you have, I mean if you just sit around all weekend or you don't do anything productive all weekend then you know it kind of cancels out a lot of what you do during the regular week and PT regulated PT is oftentimes just kind of your maintenance program but you have to do stuff on your own so getting motivated to get out of bed in the morning and like do stuff on your own everyone's always like how do you get up so where am I, I just get up <laughs> you know it's a choice that you have to make and it's hard for right. people to do because it doesn't it's some. Um, it's not how people were raised a lot of times, and for me, like I said, it, it it's it's something that I love to do. So obviously, I'll wake up for it. But it's finding, figuring out how to like implement it into your life as a healthy lifestyle choice.
0: Have you found that you're starting to mentor a lot more of soldiers based on both running, and then of course some of the things that these past uh, platoon sergeants and commanders imparted onto you, some of the knowledge and and how they they tailored their leadership are you you finding that you're doing that a lot more now because you found somebody yeah, it, that actually taught you the right way of how to be a leader
2: yeah i think a lot of however much i don't want to say this like a lot of times you learn lessons because you see the wrong way to do things um it's been interesting i think it's a challenge Being an officer after being enlisted, um, I know that for me, the the hardest thing for me to figure out was that, like, people really don't care where I am half the time. And I was always telling my boss when I first came on as my second lieutenant, like, hey, I have this, I have this, I have this, I have this. And he's like, can you please just go take care of it? Like, I don't need to know where you are every second. So that was kind of a culture shock. And then also, you know, just certain little things stuck with me that I need to, I'm, I'm lucky because it... It taught me some good things, like I need to have, you know, all my training done because otherwise the training NCO has to track me down and tell me that I don't need it or that he's missing stuff from me or X, Y, and Z. So taking nuggets from being an NCO is good to carry over, but it's also difficult, I think. It's a difficult transition to put yourself on the other side of the house. But I definitely have had like the good fortune of some incredible leaders that I've been able to take a lot of of advice from and just watching them and learning them, and but also being led by them has enabled me to be a better leader, in my opinion. I think one of the things that tends to get lost, especially in, I work in the cyber workforce and, and you know, everything, I mean, there so much can be accomplished through a face-to-face conversation and getting to know your soldiers is so important because we work with a re, like a really talented group of soldiers, and understanding what everybody brings to the table, um, and knowing them in the sense that you know what's going on at home, and you know if you know asking them to stay later one day because of mission's dragging over um, is going to be an impact, and how you mitigate that impact on their family, and then because we have a very unique, like I said, a unique mission where. Kind of almost like deployed in place where there's things can happen on a different time cycle at the drop of the hat. And so I've learned a lot about how to interact with people, how to take people, take people seriously in the sense that, um, you realize that you're managing this whole family unit and not just that one soldier
0: yep.
2: uh, and, the, and everything that's going on at home. Is going to impact how they, what they bring to work and that's okay. It's just understanding that and being able to, to read people. Yeah, so yeah, I think oh, it's, it's been so important, that good leadership that I've had to understand what I appreciated as a soldier and as an NCO from officers to now be able to offer that back
1: to the enlisted force.
0: Well, what's really I, cool is oh, – go ahead, Mike.
1: I was just going to say, just to kind of paraphrase, all of what you're saying is really relationship building and, and the ability to to sit down with somebody and, and build a long-term relationship it goes further than organizational goals. I mean, it goes to it goes to personal needs and, and the kinds of things, Maggie, you're talking about, uh, the home life and, and whether or not the work stress is too much on what's going on at home. I mean, this is applicable, applicable beyond the military, but unfortunately, it's one of those things that's not very well practiced. Robert and I have had this conversation quite a bit, but I, I think that um, the one thing most of us who do this successfully in the military... Transition and bring outside of the military is our, our ability to sit down and to put aside organizational goals for a minute and to take that time to really look at an individual to develop them for their long term growth. Look at what your platoon sergeant did for you. Your company commander, your battalion commander set you up to be on a path uh, that you're on now from, from an NCO to an officer, heck, you know, in the captain's career course. And, and in the long term, the organization's going to be better, the Army's going to be better for, for what they've done for you. And it's, it's just unfortunate that so many people in so many different industries are short-sighted in nature that they don't take the time to do the things that you're talking about doing with your soldiers.
2: Yeah, it's a personal investment. We just um, we are reading an essay, or we did last night, read an essay about toxic leadership and why you know why it's allowed to persist and how some of the Army values are actually forwarded by toxic leadership, like sure. getting the job done and mission yep. completion and all these types of things. Um, And then took a look at what it means to, to be, to how you can mitigate some of that and the lessons you can learn from that. But so it's definitely, um, it's definitely a challenge every day. But, and it's, it's been great, though. Like I said, my, the soldiers that I just left um, are amazing. (laughs) They are great. What, what, Fantastic. The
0: beauty of this whole thing, too, though, is that let's let's talk about where you're headed next. I mean, you're getting ready to go into the fall to the GWU PhD program in science and technology policy, and then you're going to be heading to the United States Military Academy, where you'll be able to teach at the Army Cyber Institute housed there at the schoolhouse. So you'll be directly impacting junior or potentially junior officers at that early stage, where you have the greatest impact. To, to impart and talk about some of the lessons that you've learned, not just, of course, through the cyber aspects of it, but there's a lot of leadership opportunity here as well and mentoring that you can do.
2: Yes. I am I actually just registered for my classes this morning, uh, which is amazing because uh, the registration window opened, and it opened at 7 in the morning, and by 7.01, I was fishing complete <laughs> <and everything. laughs> I'm not surprised, yeah. <laughs> slightly embarrassing i guess but i'm ready um and so i it's a continuation of the master's degree i got with rena gold um and so it's really exciting and actually aci is a research institute so i won't i'm not going there my my mission to go there is not to be an instructor but my intent is to get there to be an instructor there are gaps i think that i can Bill and when talking, um, trying to bridge kind of the technical focus of of electrical engineering or the IT focus that's focuses that they have up at uh, West Point, and bringing in some of the social science part of it, the policy and kind of the overarching international relations issues that go into kind of the decisions that senior leaders are having to make about conducting operations in cyberspace. So it's a fantastic opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. So another opportunity that's up at West Point that I'm going to weasel my way into um, when I arrive, hopefully, is uh, every single sports team has an officer liaison. So when I was taking my coaching level one certification in New York City for USATF, I met one of the assistant track coaches for West Point. Um, he's the pole vaulting coach. And so I instantly was like guess what? <laughs> I'm coming up there in summer of 2020. How can I get involved? So my intent is to become the officer liaison for, either, you know, work with the cross-country team um, or the track team. And his impression was that it would be great because they, you know, they're always looking for the in and, and mentor on that side. Um, so that would be,
1: that's going to be amazing. No,
0: that really, would be yeah. really cool. Yeah, because then you'll be able to do something that you're passionate about on both ends of it and really make yes. a, a positive impact. That's really cool.
2: It is. Yeah, you yeah, I'm stuff. really excited. It couldn't be better. um I realized when I was at Georgetown and in, in the Hoya Battalion, um, which is my ROTC commissioning source, because it's Hoya Saxa is Georgetown's motto, um, or they're the Hoyas, and so we're we're the Hoya Battalion. The guys that I guys and gals that I commissioned with are also incredible. So my fellow first lieutenants right now about to be on captain soon. Um, are amazing group of people. Um, but working with them made me realize that I wanted to get back to that educational uh, environment, either in one way, shape, or form. So either be working as an ROTC instructor or be working up at West Point. And so it's really neat to see that it's actually happening. And um, and that senior leadership in the cyber branch was willing to take uh, a chance on me and saw this as a good opportunity to get kind of a soft science player going in for looking at cyber policy. Oh, yeah. And that's something I didn't talk about is that when for Green to Gold, part of what I I was accepted as a Tillman scholar. And that was kind of one of those pivotal moments where I realized that I wasn't, you know, just a college dropout anymore that had finished an online program with Penn State. (laughs) um, That I was actually, you know, I should I had, you know, I had a life that I needed to actually live.
1: (laughs) Right,
2: right. So
0: appreciate you again coming onto the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. And Fiona's amazing. I love that girl.
0: Yeah, Fiona was really cool. Of course, as soon as she got off, I think it was only a matter of a couple of days that she reached out to me and said, oh, you've got to have this person on your show.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she asked me and I was like, sure. And I I just listened because she posted it and I just listened to hers and I was like, yes, this would be awesome.
0: You know, wish you nothing but the best in the PhD program. Looking forward to you getting up there at the military Academy as well and making a big impact there.
2: Yeah. I'm really excited.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at mentors, the number four M I L and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device And we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision Lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or MENTORS4MIL at skeletonoptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.